All you CAD designers out there, we've got something for you. It's a short one-hour course called Resilient CAD Modeling, or RCM, and teaches you a defined set of rules and best practices for creating robust CAD models that don't break. Spend more time designing your product instead of fixing a broken feature tree. Learn more by going to learnrcm.com. That's learnrcm.com. Hi, everyone. We've set up this Being an Engineer podcast as an industry knowledge repository, if you will. We hope it'll be a tool where engineers can learn about and connect with other companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. So make some connections and enjoy the show. What I'll give myself credit for is the reason they believed in me is because I showed up with a solid plan, a good working knowledge of what my goals were and how I was going to get there. So when you put all that together, that was, for me, what got me over the hump. Hello and welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Lisa Lloyd, who is a veteran inventor and entrepreneur, voracious learner, and wicked good problem solver. Lisa's licensed her first product, uh, the French Twister, when she was only 23 and went on to license six more to major household names. She also won the coveted investment of Damon John on Shark Tank and has appeared on numerous talk shows like Dr. Phil, Good Morning America, and Fox News featuring her success. Now, she helps inventors around the world go from what if to wow. Lisa, thank you so much for (laughs) joining me on the show. My pleasure. I love hearing other people say it. What if wow? <laughs> how, how do you say it? Is that did I say it correctly? I ah, hope I didn't you get that say wrong. Wow or wow, either way, we want that wow. magic surprise, delight feeling, right? Yes, so, yeah. exactly, exactly. Well, Lisa, let, let's get started by um, sharing with the listeners a little bit about who you are and and kind of where you are now and and where you started and what what your journey has been like. Sure. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how much this will resonate with your audience because my story is a little bit unique in that I didn't come up as an engineer. I didn't even get formally educated. I did go to college for a little bit while I was in the Navy, but I dropped out like most classic entrepreneurs who can't sit still long enough when they have big dreams, big visions. So when I was 23, I invented my first product called the French Twister. You mentioned earlier, and I licensed that to Sconcy and it's done about 20 million in sales. Um, and then I went on to do it, as you mentioned, six more times altogether, the sum total of revenue from all of those products is a little over 30 million. Well, that's Uh, a wow right there. There's your wow. (laughs) There's my wow. That's what I was looking for. (laughs) Thanks, Aaron. Um, and then as a result of that success and the media attention that came around it, there, there was an immediate influx of phone calls from people saying, hey, what did you do? How did you do it? Tell me what you did, even after the very first product. And I remember being 23 and thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a girl. I like to give advice. So I give it for free. But the fact that you're willing to pay me for it, that sounds really good. Even better. The problem yeah. was I didn't know what I did that made me successful. I hmm. just did what was inside of me. I, I have really good instincts and I've been in sales my whole life. So inventing the product was actually the hardest part of the process for me, not, not getting licensing deals done. Um, 
And that resulted in me creating this company that coached people. And over the years, it really wasn't until the product that I was on Shark Tank with, TC Pets, um, we were by worldly standards successful. I mean, I was in, I sold through seven container loads from China. I was in over 400 stores, but it was during the 2008 bust. And 2000, by 2010, when we actually launched the company, we really started feeling it. By 2012, there was just no margin in the business. So we had to shut it down and it, it essentially bankrupted me. I had to financially start all over. Um, I didn't file bankruptcy, although I probably should have. So in fact, I've only recently dug myself out of that hole, but um, I learned more from that failure than I did from any of the success before. And so about a year and a half ago, I launched the Invention Accelerator to help inventors uh, really lay the right foundation for building solutions that will sell, not just inventing but actually knowing how to invent the right products at the right time for the right audience, the right way that delivers the right benefits that ultimately is successful commercially. Right. So all of that came from the learnings that I had leading up to it. And we're having a lot of fun. In fact, we, I have one student that joined just a few months ago. Uh, I was going to a trade show and he showed me something that he had worked on and actually made and sold, but failed and liquidated the inventory. I said, what are you doing with this? And he said, nothing. I said, that's crazy. There's something here. Let's make these little modifications to it. And a couple of days later, I went to a trade show. And less than two weeks later, he had a signed licensing contract. Wow. Amazing. So I know my process works, uh, but having it's an uphill battle helping inventors understand that they don't need to learn how to license. They need to learn how to invent better products. Hmm. Okay. They're like, I've got a billion things that just sure. questions just went so off my mind. Up. Now you're up to speed <clears throat> yeah. where I'm at, so we can move on. <laughs> All right. So with, with the pet product, I didn't realize that that, uh, that ended in a quote unquote failure, even though you learned so much from it and ultimately probably it's a success in, in that aspect. But is there anything, um, any actionable items that you can pick out of that and, and say, um, if, if I release a back at that time, this is maybe what I would have done different. Oh my God, there's a long list. Uh, the, the, I would say the most, the dumbest mistake, because even I knew better and still didn't do this right. Uh, so the dumbest mistake that I made was I was working with China on the prototypes and they sent me, I kept trying to get them down in cost, get them down in cost. And they sent me along with my prototypes that I had specified and scoped out the work for. They had stuck in there another one where it was just a stuffed animal with with pockets. And mine were foam molded with the plush on the outside so that it looked like a stuffed animal, but it was really more utilitarian and functional. And they said, look, this is the cheapest it's ever going to get. And it was. It was probably a third of the cost wow. of goods. Huh. The problem was it wasn't patentable. It was public domain. There was nothing I could do with that. And because I had come up in this world of invention licensing, uh, I had put so much emphasis on the power and um, necessity for having that intellectual property that I dismissed their idea altogether and said, no, that doesn't work. I can't get a patent on it. And it doesn't fit the patent that I already have. So no, I need you to get cost down on what I've made up my mind I have to sell. Interesting. Yeah. I thought you were going to go the other way with that and, and say, yeah, I accepted their cheap version and nobody liked it. And, right? No, nope. okay. just the opposite. Stood my ground because I was so sure that I had the best solution. 
but not following my own advice. Um, listen, if someone can get something <clears throat> that does the same job for less, we know studies, all the research shows us that consumers, it's five times more expensive to earn a new customer. In other words, someone who's never even bought in that category versus getting a customer to, um, sorry, it's five times more expensive to to get a customer to make the switch from an existing brand and an existing product to selling just a brand new customer that's never bought that type of product. So if their product is a third the cost, and, and, and sure enough, someone came out with that exact product after I did, after Shark Tank, after I had built, I had basically blown open that door of opportunity for functional plush. And now you see backpacks, you see, and those were all in my inventory. Those were all ideas that I had. Oh, backpacks. No. Um, what else? You know, pillows, um, all these different things came up after that were functional, all because I just couldn't get a patent. And and that was primarily because I also didn't have deep enough pockets to go to market. You know, speed to market is another way to win. You don't have to have a patent. But and in this case, since I wasn't licensing, I really didn't need a patent. But I also didn't have deep pockets to get to market fast enough. And that's exactly what I was afraid of. Any big company with deep enough pockets that already made plush could take my concepts and make their own functional plush. Hmm. So yeah, a huge learning curve. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts there. So is, is one of the takeaways there, if you can get the same pro it's not quite the same product. It's not maybe wasn't quite as functional as your product, but it was close enough and the cost was so much less that it, it, it just made sense. Is, is that accurate? I think going into it, had I known, had I paid better attention to that, I could have done some research like customer persona interviews, for example, and learned more about what they like and don't like and that sort of thing and how important price is because mine absolutely was always going to be more expensive and was the differentiation that I was offering the unique benefits that came with my product overt enough to make someone want to buy it and spend more versus the competitor, which was public domain and easy, I think I would have learned that no, people wouldn't spend more and I would have just quit sooner. And it would have saved me, my home, my car. I ended up getting a divorce. I mean, it was ugly. Oh my so. goodness. I'm so sorry. Wow. Yeah. What an ordeal to we're go still through. Great friends. Family's great. We're strong. We're solid. Wow. But, but yeah, I mean, it changed the entire trajectory of my life. Not to mention, I mean, I was basically in the fetal position crying because I sure. and, and throwing up. I was so sick. And that went on for almost a year. And then I spent the next five years just hanging out in New Orleans and running away from the world at large because I, yeah. it just destroyed me. So sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing such a yeah, personal sure. story. Well, uh, another, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, another question that came to mind as you were sharing kind of your, your summary was how people were calling you asking for advice and you didn't know what to tell them because you weren't sure how you had done it. And you had to somehow extract that information out of yourself. What was the process like? Not, not necessarily the result, the, the things that ultimately you were able to tell people, this is how you do it. You do A and then B and then C. But what was the process like of extracting that information in, you know, from within you and, yeah. and, and identifying, oh, this, this is how I did it? Um, I... I, I I had the self-awareness to know, even at a very young age, that I didn't have the answers to their questions. So I told everybody, I don't know what you should do, but I am happy to tell you what I did and why I think it worked. 
And so I shared everything from my personal experience, um, which was quite a bit at that time because I didn't know anybody else that had, you know, especially at that age, um, licensed a product that was getting passive income 60. My job, I only made 13,000 a year and my royalties were $60,000 a year. Okay. Easy choice. Yeah. Yeah. And they were major companies. So there were best practices that I learned from that, that I was able to share with other people in terms of setting their expectations based on my experience. And then I reminded them as often, and I still do, there's always going to be unknown unknowns. Like I, I could tell you what I know, and I can tell you what we collectively don't know, but we, here's how you can go get the answers to these questions. These are the questions we have to get answers to. How big is the market? How big is the opportunity? How big is the pain? So is there enough people with that pain that it's worth going into business? All of the questions that have to be answered to make a decision to move forward with an idea. Um, we know those, those questions to ask and how to go get those answers. But then there's always those unknown unknowns. And so that's where just being available to people over the years for when they do finally get on the phone, when they do finally negotiate, when they do finally have a contract in front of them, we took all of those on a case by case basis. And I still do. Well, that, <clears throat> one of the reasons I've been so excited to talk with you is because as, as engineers, we have a pretty well-defined path that we follow to take a, an idea from, you know, just that an idea into a, a tangible product and it, we've pretty well followed that same process every time. And I'm wondering if, if your, your process, your path was different than the engineer's path. And, and I would love to, to dig into you tell some me of yours that. yours and I'll tell you mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're going to start with yours because you're the of guest. I'm the host. Are. I get to ask the questions. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, uh, to, to what extent, if at all, let me ask you, uh, have you worked with engineers during your process or was it, you know, mostly you drawing some sketches and sending it off to a factory? Oh, no, absolutely. I'm working with engineers right now, in fact. Hmm. So there are different times and different case, uh, d- different cases where it would become necessary or maybe isn't necessary. And so the first thing is to qualify. If my goal is to license I know what a company needs, what questions a company needs to answer for themselves to make that decision. And one of those questions is, uh, can it be made cost effectively and will it work at delivering on the benefit promise for our customers? So in order to answer that question, I may be able to say, we're talking about a, a, a new toothbrush that is designed in a way that looks more comfortable. Um, well, until you put that in someone's hands, they're, they can look at it and they maybe can feel it, but it's not quite the same thing. So perhaps a working model with some Frankenstein stuff glued together will be enough to illustrate that it will get the job done. In, in Today, what I'm working on, a mop, one of the things is a mop and it's it's very complicated. And it's one of those, you know how sometimes the simplest things are the hardest things to engineer. Mm, I do. Right? I had an English teacher who used to say that which is easy to read was difficult to write. Right. Exa- that's exactly what I'm dealing with on the mop. So it's really simple. But getting it to work simply is where yeah. the real genius is. Now, I did my own, a very small, a scaled working model to get a proof of concept, just to flesh out the idea. And then 
I played around with a lot of different scenarios of using different components to put it together to ultimately achieve the job that we wanted it to do. Um, and then we patented all of those and it's very broad. It's very, very wide. And then I hired engineers to take my proof of concept and what I kind of envisioned the final product to look like and fill in the gaps to get it from where I was to finish it. What? Yes, that does make sense. What from from an inventor standpoint? What has been one of the most frustrating aspects of working with engineers, and and conversely, one of the most rewarding or beneficial aspects of of working with engineers? So, I guess the most challenging is setting expectations, um, and I have the same problem because I deal with inventors all day, also. And when someone comes really early and they don't have any experience, any wisdom from which to draw. They don't ask the right questions and they don't articulate what they want very well. And the result is that engineers who think very logically and analytically about a process aren't reading between the lines of the the fuzzy matter that's going on in that person's head and trying to extrapolate that. And so as a result, unmet expectations result in demands from pain in the butt clients, you know, inventors in particular, or Conversely, they're very disappointed because they thought they were really clear and didn't get what they wanted. And it costs time and money. And that's terrifying for somebody who's already making a a risky proposition by venturing on their idea, right? Right. So I would say that's the biggest challenge. Um, The the greatest reward of working with, with good engineers is their collaborative input, their their domain expertise and helping really drill down and define on the the feature set in a way that delivers a superior experience, for example, for the the end user, Um, whether that's getting costs down because they can think of better materials or, you know, off the shelf parts or whatever, some unique combination of, of parts that come together in a new way that make even a superior experience from what you were thinking about. I love that part. I love collaborating, love collaborating. With the right person. With the right, I, yeah, <laughs> with the right, right person, people. Um, what What are some beliefs that product development engineers specifically, but, but feel free to open it up to the general public too, since you've worked with so many inventors. What are some beliefs that, that we have about product development that you have found to simply not be true? Some beliefs that with regard to product development that are not true. Yeah, some assumptions that we make, you know. That what is in your head can be made, mm, followed okay. by that it can be made at cost effectively. Ah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. It's the How biggest much... mistake I see inventors make just because, again, they have no expertise whatsoever. And just because you can draw something, you can even hire. In fact, in our business, inventors often will license using a sell sheet. And so they to save money rather than hiring an engineer, they might do a 3D photo or animation. Mm. Just because I can draw it doesn't mean it will ever work in the real world. Right. And they don't understand that sometimes. Have you had to learn much about the different manufacturing processes and what is possible and what is not? For example, injection molding versus CNC machining, things like that. When it was relevant and necessary, it was always helpful for me to understand the process. And because I've done this so many times and worked with so many inventors that I've had the privilege of learning from, I I do have enough that it makes it easier for me to very quickly qualify good ideas and bad ideas, right? Because I can think through what that's going to take. 
Yeah. Um, but in the beginning, it was a trial by fire learning, you know, and so I have learned each step of the way from each product. The very first one was injection molded only because what I had in my head was, and so the French twister for your audience who might not know what that is, since it's a hair accessory, it's a clip that was uh, kind of like a banana clip. It closed up on your hair vertically with, with teeth on uh, teeth to help grab it. It was a long, slim thing. And when it closed up, you rolled it up and you put two pins in and you had a French twist in your hair. Um, my idea originally was I used a hanger to make a wire U and then put the foam from the top of the hanger that comes back from the dry cleaner. I put that around the wire so that that foam would grip the stray hairs. So you put drop your hair in that U and roll it up and you had the French twist. Mm. Couldn't find a manufacturer. Didn't know what that was called. This was before Google. Um, and so I couldn't exactly even do the research. I, the only thing I found in the yellow pages were injection molders. So we ended up changing the way we made the product to accommodate manufacturing processes. And nowadays, had I been able to do it another way, it would have probably looked very different because I know more than I did then. Yeah, yeah. I love how uh, inexpensively you were able to prototype that first product. Um, I was speaking just now about how I know what the engineer's process is, and maybe it's, it differs a little bit from the inventor's process. And that's a perfect illustration. I, I can tell you right now that my team of engineers, if we gave them that idea, the first thing would be, let's let's put it together in CAD and, and 3D print some prototypes, which is a great, great way. But here you took a coat hanger and some foam and validated <laughs> the idea. You know, we, we would have spent five grand and, and you did it in like an afternoon with, you know, two dollars worth of material. I did, Erin. It's funny. Amazing. And I, I have others. I did one. The very first proof of concept was a toilet paper roll. And it was a hair accessory. I have another one <laughs> that um, two of them actually that I cut up soda bottles. And because that I didn't know what it was, I now know it's PETG. But at the time when I was still figuring this stuff out, um, I dropped it in hot water and used salad tongs to shape it. And I had a, a barrette that did exactly what I needed. It was ugly as shit, if I can say that. But it was, you know, it got the job done. And it's actually today it is the number one best selling hair accessory of all time for Helen of Troy, which has it under the Vidal Sassoon and Revlon brands. And I did that Incredible. with a bottle. Incredible. <laughs> that makes me want to create some kind of challenge for my team. Give them nothing but like garbage basically and say, yeah, what can you come up with? You know, call exactly. Teen experiment. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Exactly right. Just dump a box on the table and say, you have to make something from this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I love that idea. I'm going to do that. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, let me take just a very short break here and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. We're speaking with Lisa Lloyd today, inventor extraordinaire. Now, Lisa, you, you, um, you bootstrapped your, your, your first product, right? We talked about that. And, uh, I listened to an interview that you had done some, some time ago and the interviewer asked, um, about the, uh, I can't remember the context exactly, but it, he asked about how much you spent on, on future products. And you said something to the effect of, well, I realized that if I, I didn't have to spend much money on this first product, and even though I was successful with it and I had cash for future projects, 
why why would I spend a bunch of money on the future projects if I was able to do the first one so so inexpensively? Can you tell me a, a little bit more about that mindset and, and how that went for you? Yeah, sure. I think that was on the big idea with Donnie Deutsch. Okay, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, business is all about ROI. I mean, it's just as simple as that. And if you don't have a high enough return on your investment, then you're in the wrong business. And for me, um, I have even, even before TC pets, before the mass epic failure, I had a hundred percent success. And even with that success, I knew that there were going to be unknown unknowns because I had learned from each one of them that something always comes up that you didn't know, plan or anticipate. And if you have spent your money just because you had it, you spent it on engineering, for example, big time. And, you know, like you spent $100,000 getting a prototype on something that doesn't license or that has to change three more times and you run out of money before you can even do the iterations. You're out of business before you're in it. So you need money for those rainy days, those when those unknown unknowns come up. So anything you can do yourself, you should. It just makes sense. And unless you have some sort of guarantee that this is what you're going to get at this date, this much money, now you have a budget and you can plan accordingly, that would be smart business sense. You're going to get the return on your investment because you have the budget based on what you know you're going to get later. But if there's no guarantee that you're going to make money on your invention, whether you decide to make it and venture off to like to sell it yourself or license it, then you should probably do everything you can to save as much because it's a risky enough business to begin with. And you don't want to run out of money should you need it somewhere in the process. Yeah, I love that. I just finished reading Jim Collins book, Good to Great for the... It's a great I book. don't know, second or third time. Yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. you know I've read it before and I read it again recently and it was it was like blowing my mind. I, I don't know how I missed all of this stuff the first time around, but one of the things mm-hmm. he talked about was how these success companies in in uh, contrasted against the the comparison companies that didn't turn out to be such great successes. One of the differentiating differentiating factors was that they kept so much more cash on hand than the uh, the comparison companies. And it was for exactly the reason that you've mentioned a couple times now, the unknown unknowns, right? You just you don't know what's going to come up in these success companies. They were much better prepared with cash on hand to right. deal with those things. Even, even though they were as smart as they were, they still knew that there were unknown unknowns. And they it's a rainy day, it's your rainy day fund. You need it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and if, you don't, um, if it turns out you don't need it, that just means more, a higher return on your investment. That's right. Either way, don't spend, yeah. in other words, you spend smartly. I'm not suggesting you don't spend money, but make sure you, there's a time to do it and a time not to. And you need to understand when that is. Yeah. That's the, and that's the challenge. Understanding when, yeah. yeah. Um, this next question is, is um, uh, I don't know where this is going to go, but I, I, I was thinking about my company pipeline and I can, I can trace this, the, the majority of the success that we have had as a company back to a single phone call. And I wondered, can you trace your success back to, was there like a single event that occurred or a single idea or a day, anything like that? I'm just curious. No, it's definitely a, a series of beautiful things or the perfect storm, depending on which yeah. way it ends. Right. Um, 
in the beginning, it was being encouraged and supported by the people I love and who, you know, loved me and believed in me and stood by me when, when it got tough or scary. Um, it was the people who volunteered to help me, like give me free advice, the attorney that I met with the first time and explained to me what patents were. There were, there wasn't a lot available back then for people mm. like me, but even, even the factory that I ended up partnering with to make them the French twister the first time around, uh, they partnered and took a risk on me. And, and what, what and year had, was that? The French twister? The fr- I'm sorry. What was the question? What year was that? I was, that would be 30 years ago. <clears throat> yeah. There was not a whole lot of information around back then. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. Okay. So I, I then also partnered with a production company that did the local commercial for me so that I could put it on cable and advertise a direct response campaign. So it had the 1-800 number. I remember uh, the, the jingle, the French twister, elegance made easy. <laughs> then people would call. Um, what a great memory. But they, well, they, they were super helpful. Like it's just people believing in me and supporting me. I could not have done it alone. Would not have happened mm. if people didn't stand by me. Now, what I'll give myself credit for is the reason they believed in me is because I showed up with a solid plan, a good working knowledge of what my goals were and how I was going to get there. And they could see my drive and determination and passion and all of that, which obviously you have to believe in the entrepreneur, not just the business plan. So when you put all that together, that was for me, what got me over the hump. How do you think you found all of these right people? You know, you had all these people who blessed your life and, and, and believed in you and helped you succeed. How, did you just get lucky and stumble across the right people? No, I was rabid about finding them. Mm. (laughs) Uh, No, nothing fell into my lap. There's nothing that I have that came easy or without any effort on my part and serious. The the biggest things came with the most serious effort. In fact, the first product I actually hired an engineer for was a CO2 powered airbrush. And I know there's no video for this. I'd show it to you, but um, the airbrush took a, a small CO2 cartridge and it's, which regulated it down from, I think about 3,600 PSI to about 12. And that regulator was what I had to have professional help with. And so at first I used a garage mechanic guy, you know, garage engineer sort of situation. He wasn't educated in it, but he was really good at, at solving problems. And then once we got a functional, semi-functional working model, I was able to license that to a company that already owned and patented a regulator, but had never done anything with it because they were in the business of blowing up air tires, not spray painting. So they didn't know Mm. they didn't need a regulator. They needed just the one shot. That was all their tech, but they had this thing just sitting there. So we ended up putting that together. um, And then in fact, they didn't have the sales and distribution. So now I've got a company that's going to finish the engineering for free because I've licensed it to them but they have no sales and distribution in the, in the channel that I need, which is beauty and cosmetics. So I went to a trade show with my working model and they had done some beautiful illustrations of what it could look like finished. And I pitched at a trade show to the VP of sales for Helen of Troy. And they, their first purchase order was $1.2 million based on just my proof of concept, all of the drawings, but knowing that the company who developed the engineer that was going to make this actually do a good job um, they had the credibility and the domain expertise because they'd been selling CO2 products for 20 years. Mm. So, I mean, it took creative thinking on my part. How useful were trade shows for you? Oh, I love trade shows. I, I absolutely love them. I mean, it's, 
it's like, instead of getting on a plane and flying out and hoping for a meeting with every single company, I can literally just walk up and down the floors and talk to decision makers at trade shows all under one roof with one trip. And would you typically um, have your own booth there? Were you an exhibitor or an no. attendee and you would just walk, walk the aisle? If I'm licensing, I, I just attend. If I, uh, when I was selling TC pets, for example, the product on shark tank, I always had a booth cause we were selling to retailers, but, I, and those were the people I wanted to talk to. But if I want to talk to the companies, having a booth is making it, it makes it harder because I have to depend uh, on them coming to me. So okay. I'd rather just walk up and down the aisles, walk right up to the booth and introduce myself and ask them if they have ever, or would they ever consider licensing an outside from an outside product developer? And if they say, sure, we, we haven't, but we'd be open to it or, or yes, they do. Then I say, great. You know, I've got a few products here. Do you have five minutes? <clears throat> Take a quick look. And then we can follow up after the show if, if it makes sense. Yeah. And then they say, yeah, always. That's great. Always. That's great. Okay. Um, what is one of the, the worst and best pieces of advice relating to product development that you've ever received? I don't get a lot of advice. (laughs) You you give more than you get. (laughs) You know, like I said, I didn't have anybody. I had to figure it all out on my own trial by fire. Um, You know, I get business advice now because I am the quintessential solopreneur who needs a lot of business advice, but not invention advice. Oh, well, let's let's go there then. What's one piece of the best and worst business advice you've well, received? Well, and actually in thinking about that, what it, it did remind me of, of one piece of advice. So my mentor now, Richard Hasnot, who owns Innovate to Grow Experts, they're a boutique firm. I'm one of several people on the team that uh, helps front-end innovation teams at large organizations ideate. And... Richard has, Richard's been very helpful for me in, in helping to articulate better what it was that made me successful. Like I said earlier, that was always hard for me. And after working with these companies and learning more about the more traditional best practices that happen inside large organization innovation teams, I was able to translate because I could see what they were doing was going to be successful and why it worked. And I could see how I did those things. I just didn't know mm. that's what it was called. Yeah. So whether it's talking about using the value pyramid to use uh, design thinking and empathetic innovation to create solutions that are dramatically better than the competition, that would be advice that I learned from him just to observe and all the different types of best practices that were out there already and hundreds of books that I never found until him um, to help me formulate my processes in a way that isn't just based on my own experience, but what large organizations do to be successful as well. What are, what are a couple of the best books that you've read on the subject? Clayton Christensen is one of my favorites. Uh, his last book before he passed away last year was um, competing against luck. That's one of my all time favorites, but he was the author of disruptive innovation. He's the one who coined the phrase. So any of his books are I would highly recommend Um, Doug Hall, who started uh, Eureka Ranch now has a program. If you go to Eureka Ranch's website, um, that is engineering. uh, What does he call it? 
engineering innovation, I think is what it's actually called. And he sells the curricula to Ivy League schools and he's working his way out to some of the other academia opportunities that are out there, different schools and, and universities. Are you familiar with Doug Hall? I'm not, no. He has a book called Jump, Jumpstart. He has one called Jumpstart Your Business Brain. Great book. I would recommend it highly. Great. I'm going to add these to the show notes. And interestingly enough, Doug Hall and Richard Hasnut, my mentor, um, both of them worked at Procter & Gamble. They were both VPs at Procter & Gamble at the same time and know each other. And that's how I'm familiar with Doug is through Richard. Okay. Now, you uh, you mentioned helping large organizations ideate. Can mm-hmm. you speak a little bit more about that? What, what are some of the tools that you share with these, these organizations to help them ideate? Right. So it begins by helping for, it begins by getting the right butts in the seats since you're talking about good mm. to great. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Um, to collaboration. I mentioned earlier how much I love to collaborate. The best collaboration happens when you have diversity in the room. And one of the biggest mistakes that large organizations make is with their, just their infrastructure, the way it's set up, everyone's siloed and they all have their unique jobs. And I, I get why a business needs that to function, but it ha- that, Part of it has to be disruptive, disrupted to truly impact uh, the innovation that's going to come out of that company. You can get incremental growth with the current systems in place, but you won't see truly dramatic growth with that type of a structure because you won't, if you leave it to engineering to come up with the ideas, um, then it, it's really hard to push through marketing and and sales and et cetera. If marketing comes to engineering, they feel threatened by that. And, and then you have times where there are certain projects where you need outside uh, expertise, domain expertise. So one example that we use with at I2GE is, you know, Nestle is a case study that we have uh, where, where Nestle, I think it was, yeah, it was Nestle invited us in. And the challenge was, around a, a frozen food product that needed to be improved, cut the time needed to be cut in half and still deliver a good taste. Right. And so we brought in someone who had recently written a paper that wasn't even published yet that had microwave technology domain expertise and contributed in a way that it was solved on the first half of the first day where they had brought in two other majors like McKinsey. I don't know who I won't, I won't say who it is, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't McKinsey, but you know what I mean? Those types of firms had both failed Hmm. and we had a three day contract and it was done by noon on the first day. Wow. Uh That's amazing. It's about getting the right people in there for starters. And then there's, you know, the stimulus, you understand the different people that are in the room. You've got your left brains and you've got your right brains and how to stimulate that discussion in a way that is effective at driving the best possible conversation in a safe environment. Um, sometimes, in fact, one story Richard told me was when American Express wanted to create a new card, what ultimately came out of it was the black card. But they started right off by saying, we're, we're going to charge $20,000 a year for this card. And everybody in the room, no, 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 no. And when they talked through it with the right people, and again, they had lawyers in the room, which normally, how many times have you ever heard of bringing a lawyer into a room an innovation discussion. Yeah, right. But everybody who ha- who who's impacted by the decision on that innovation should be there to contribute in how it is developed. 
When when you say diversity, can you explain what do you mean exactly? About are you saying men and women, people from India, people from U.S., or are you talking more engineering, legal, finance, marketing? What what do you mean by diversity? Both and neither. Um, what I'm talking about is the people that are most relevant to answering the question or solving the problem, the challenge that's on the table. So who needs to be there to solve the challenge? If we as a large organization are making a decision that we, we've we been given the task of 20% increase in our revenue directly derived from new product development, okay, that's come down from the top or from our constituent, you know, stakeholders, whatever. If it's that open, then we're going to probably talk to our customers first and we're going to define where there are gaps in the market and understanding what the problems are that are out there. And then we're going to bring the problems back and decide who needs to be in the room to solve them. But it always starts with the challenge on the table and who are the right people to help answer that challenge. And it's going to be, it, it might be all men, it might be all women. It depends on the product or the problem that you're trying to solve and who the best people are to help solve that. Yeah. Okay. So diversity doesn't always mean the same thing. It, it's it's specific to the situation. Always. And if you just have the engineers in there who are captive working for that company and maybe don't even buy the products that they sell at that company, that's probably not going to be the the best source of in, this information. Now, I would still want those people, need to be clear, those people, but I need them to collaborate with other people who also bring in the, the multidimensional approach that 10x is your success in the long run. I like that answer. Okay. This this next question is a little bit uh, a little bit different as well, but I found it to be a really interesting one in, in getting to know a person. What is the most scared you've ever been? And feel free to take that either personally or professionally, your choice. Uh, so what is the most scared you've ever been? And what did you learn from that situation? Wow. Um, you got me in the heartstring there. Um, takes me back to TC Pets uh, mm. when I was going to let my family and my investors down and was, and, and my reputation would be just in my head, my reputation would be destroyed. It turns out it wasn't, but I had this whole story painted in my head that it was the end of the world. Hmm. Um, I had always succeeded. I'd never failed. So I had a very thin skin for it to begin with, but I thought that the only reason people liked me and accepted me, my identity had been so wrapped up in my success that I was afraid now that I was going to technically fail at this thing. Uh, I was going to lose my reputation, my family, my friends, my clients, everything was going to, my, my income, my ability to live. Yeah. It was was terrifying, paralyzing fear. Wow. And so uh, kind of finding your, your true identity is, is what came out of this. If, if I'm understanding that correctly. You're wow, absolutely understanding that correctly. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Wow, what- so now I have, you know, I have a true North I stay focused on. Um, and there's different true Norths depending, like I have one for work and I have one for my personal life and they have to align. Mm. And I'm very, very selective and intentional about what jobs I take on and what people I work with. In fact, my program, the Invention Accelerator, is by invitation only. Ah, There's no application online for someone that they can just fill it out and hit a join button. doesn't exist. There's a a gentleman named Earl Nightingale who has since (laughs) passed on. But uh, are you familiar with Earl? 
yeah. I, I, uh, I took Nightingale courses. Did you? Oh, mm-hmm. Leave the field. One of my all-time favorites. Yeah. I just love it. Anyway, you, you might remember this, but you talked about True North, and I remembered on his Lead the Field program, he talks about if you ask the, uh, the the captain of a ship what his destination is, he'll tell you in a single sentence. And but if you ask you know a person what what is your destination, what's what's your true north, so to speak, right? A lot of us don't really know what that is, and so it's uh, I think it's pretty incredible that you have true north for personal and true north for um, right, and they have to align. Yeah, yeah, and I have yeah. to answer. I have to answer the question: Why am I doing this? And and don't get me wrong, I have not got this completely nailed down. I get distracted and busy, just like anybody else. But every morning, I I recalibrate. I have my quiet time, and I get my shit in order. You know, blinders go on. I know where I'm going and what I'm doing, and reboot every single day. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It, it's um. It's painful in the moment, but but um, so interesting how these times in our lives that were the the scariest, right, can, can at least turn out to be like the biggest blessings in our in our lives. I, I I have answered that question differently in the past, but just when you were speaking, I, I thought to myself, you know what? I think I have a, a similar answer to Lisa. I, I got laid off from my job, and I was you know I was terrified, and I thought. Wow. Well, I, I, if I'm not an engineer, what am I? And, and right. I a young family, and how am I going to support my my wife and this baby? And anyway, I, it's terrifying. It's terrifying, absolutely. It yeah, is. but it turned out to be one of the the biggest blessings of my life. Yep. If you let it, if you let failure be your friend and your teacher, it's amazing what it will show you, what it will reveal about you, to you, in you, and for the world. So, yep, hundred percent. That's great. All right. Well, just just a couple more questions, and then and then we'll wrap it up here. Um, bringing it back to product development, can you think of a tool out there that that would be just the most powerful magical tool to facilitate product development that doesn't exist yet? <laughs> the crystal ball. The crystal ball. Okay. So knowing what people want, huh? Knowing what people want, what will sell you? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Well, um, is there is there anything else that I should have asked you that I haven't? Oh my gosh. Honestly, I could sit here and talk for hours and I don't know your audience, I think, well enough to know what they want to learn most. But if anybody's considering inventing, um, the biggest mistake that I think inventors make is, and, and this is true, I have engineers in my program. In fact, I probably shouldn't say this publicly, but they're my favorites because (laughs) we jive, like we can talk the same language and, and they're logical. So when I say, this is the way you do it and here's why they say, Oh, okay. And then they go do it that way. Um, It's a lot harder with some other people, but understanding how big of a problem it is and for how many people who have it, and then designing a solution for with, with those people in mind so that it's empathetic and doesn't just solve your pain experience, but for their pain experiences, which are different, which goes back to diversity and the assumption that we always make, it's just like kids. They always think they're the only ones that have that problem. No, you don't understand mom. You know, <laughs> like you're the only kid that's ever had. Come on. I do understand what you're going through. Um, it, it's not just you, it's other people and what they go through. And then it gives you, as an engineer anyway, and I wish I was one. I wish I knew CAD. I'm trying. I'm learning. I have a 3D printer. I showed it to you, Aaron, earlier. 
Nice, um, nice. Yep. I, there would be no stopping me because I have that part nailed, but don't have the engineering. In fact, if I had an engineering partner, I can't even imagine we'd change the world. Oh my goodness. Um, right. Well, um, all the people listening to this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you let, if there's someone out there that wants to be my partner, we'll, we'll talk about it. I'm definitely yeah. open to it. Um, getting the products, getting them made is the most expensive and, and slowest part of the process for me, but having the ideas and fleshing out what those ideas are and the, the, the making a business case for them. And then later presenting that business case for licensing, I got that part down. Um, so for the engineers, I think it would be, if I could learn how to engineer it, that would help me. If engineers can learn how to do what I do better, which is a best personally, I don't know if I do it better than someone else listening, obviously, um, would be to really truly understand the opportunities that are out there in a better way. Then there would be no stop. Oh my God. The income potential for any of you listening would be incredible. I can tell that, uh, these words come from deep experience and <laughs> I'm lots feeling of them as they drip out of my mouth. Well, yeah. these are well-earned insights over the years. So, <laughs> well, Lisa, thank you so much for, for sharing all of Thanks this. For having me, um, yeah. How can people get a hold of you, you know, for the engineers out there who want to partner with yeah. you or anyone else that just wants to chat and get to know Lisa, how can they get a hold of you? Oh, thanks for asking. Uh, if you are interested in learning how to invent patent license your products, you can go to the invention accelerator.com and accelerator ACC, um, not EX. So the invention accelerator.com to uh, learn more or book a call with me. Uh, and for that matter, if you would like to just talk to me about possibly, possibly working with me on some project or something like that, you can use that same calendar at the invention accelerator.com to book a call with me and we'll just put in the notes for me that that's what we're chatting about. So I know ahead of time. Otherwise you can check me out on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Lisa, my, it's my full name, Lisa V as in Victor Lloyd is how you look me up. So linkedin.com slash Lisa V Lloyd, I think, or slash I N Lisa V Lloyd. Um, and I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn as well. Those are the best ways to find me. Awesome. Well, Lisa, this has been a delight. Thank you again so much for sharing all the insights and wisdom with the listeners. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It was fun. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.